Hello and welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women podcast, where we share the legacy of women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You'll get to know the faithful women who shaped our past and also hear from inspiring women of faith today. I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. We're your co-hosts. Today, we're so excited to welcome Jane Clayson Johnson to the podcast. Jane, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Carly and Shailen. Well, we've been really looking forward to this. Before we jump into the questions, we'd just like to briefly introduce our guest. Jane Clayson Johnson graduated from Brigham Young University with a degree in broadcast journalism and really used that degree. She went on to have a remarkable career as an award-winning journalist, widely known for her work at CBS News and ABC News. So many of our listeners will know her from her incredible work. She currently lives in Boston with her husband, Mark, and they have five children and three grandchildren. And Jane, as an international journalist, you used your skills recently to interview Latter-day Saints about depression and then wrote a book based on these interviews. And that book is called Silent Souls Weeping, Depression, Sharing Stories, Finding Hope. And Carly and I were just fascinated that you interviewed 150 people to gather these stories that you then wrote about. And we're so glad for this opportunity to hear what you've learned through your own experiences with depression that you've shared and also the unique stories that came from your research. And we've just been really looking forward to this and think it'll be really beneficial to so many of our listeners who are having similar experiences. We hear this kind of feedback a lot or those who are supporting loved ones who may be struggling with mental health challenges as well. So again, we're just so glad to have you. Well, thank you. You know, so many people do struggle. And what I have learned is that so many people struggle and suffer in silence. And that's really um, the reason that I wrote this book after my own experience with depression. But, you know, I give talks or before COVID, I would give talks and I would ask people in the room where I was giving a talk to stand if they or someone that they love suffered with depression or anxiety or other mental illnesses. And it didn't matter if the group was 20 people or 2,000 people, 98% of the room stood up. And I believe with all my heart that everyone has a story. And if you're not struggling with these issues yourself, you know someone or you live with someone who is. And so having these conversations and opening up the discussion, I think is so important. So thank you for being willing to talk about these difficult issues. And again, thanks for having me today. Of course. Of course. And we appreciate your openness too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And as you say that, I remember you saying in the book that I think they estimate one in five people in the United States suffer from mental illness. So when you think about a family or you think about a ward family, that's a significant number of people. Yeah. And it's men, it's women, it's teenagers, it's children. No one is spared from these challenges. And so I have special empathy also for caregivers, people who have never experienced these issues themselves. And if you've never experienced it and you're, for example, like my husband, someone who's just steady and even going all the time and your wife has a significant clinical depression, I think the inclination is to say, oh, what is your problem? You know, buck up. Life's tough. There are lunches to make and kids to drive to school and work to get to. And it's hard. And so I think there needs to be um, a conversation so that we can overcome the stigma, we can understand the illness and help each other. Mm-hmm. Jane, as I read these stories that you shared, and it's been a couple years now, through this process of meeting and hearing these most personal stories from 150 people, what are some of the things that still stand out in your mind, either memorable experiences or themes or takeaways that you just kind of want to shout from the rooftops? Well, you know, I guess when I started my research 
I didn't really understand the magnitude of the problem. And so I myself went through a pretty severe clinical depression. And I didn't want to talk about it and I didn't want to open up about it because I was embarrassed about it and I was ashamed. And, you know, I'd lived a pretty public life. And so I thought, well, if I, I mean, talk about this or reveal these quote unquote secrets of my emotional state, what are people going to think? And after a significant amount of time in the struggle, and then when I slowly started to come out of it, I started to talk with other people about what had happened to me. And I started to realize how many people also had the same experience or similar experience. And so what I have learned, I guess, from the beginning of this till the end of, you know, sort of where I am now and talking about it and having written a book about it and spoken to quite literally thousands of people about it is that we have to have the courage to confront the problem and be honest with ourselves about what it is. And I talk now very openly about brain health, about trying to reduce the stigma and to help people understand that mental illness may be invisible, but it is no less devastating or painful than any other physical condition. And that's really my message. And that's what I have learned over the process of writing this book and certainly through my own journey. And I really appreciated, as you emphasized over and over, that depression is a disease. It is an illness. I like how you said we're talking about brain health here. It's not a character defect. It's not a spiritual deficit. And we'll talk more about how there are unique challenges within our own Latter-day Saint community in how we talk about depression and deal with depression and mental health challenges. So thank you for sharing that. Well, Jane, I thought this was interesting. From your personal story, you shared that it wasn't until you were living your dream, you know, in quotes, that you were diagnosed with depression. You were a wife and a mother, and you were also dealing with difficulties related to fertility. But I just think it's so interesting that depression is no respecter of persons. So it's like when depression isn't triggered by something traumatic, I imagine that it's hard to reconcile feelings of, I should be feeling grateful and I should be happy happy. You know, things are going well. I'm doing what I can to be a good person and to follow Jesus Christ. But then you have these feelings of excruciating depression and this feeling of debilitation. And so I think especially for members of the church, when the gospel is about joy, but they're not feeling joy, that's a very difficult thing. And we wanted to know, how have you dealt with this or seen others deal with this type of dissonance? Well, I think it's a really important question. Let me share, if you will, my story with you first, because I think it's illustrative of how difficult it is to, your point, deal with this when you are feeling like you'd rather not be around anymore. I mean, I had had what I call situational sadness over the years, just the ups and downs of life. I had a successful career and had worked for many years and as sort of at the highest levels and had traveled the world and done a lot of things and got married and started to have a family and all of a sudden was just hit with darkness and sadness unlike anything I had ever experienced before. I mean, it was so unexpected and so harrowing. And I didn't really know what was happening because I had never experienced these feelings before. But it was very physical for me. I use words like drowning and choking and sinking and suffocating. I mean, I just felt like someone had 
tied me up in a sack and thrown me in a dark, damp cave. And I couldn't get out. And it was dark and cold. And I was lonely and alone. And the longer it went on, the worse it got until I finally started to have this narrative in my head that said, you know, your husband would be so much better off without you. Your children deserve a better mother than you are. And I started fantasizing about my own funeral and the chapel full of people and the flowers and who would speak. And, you know, I mean, I, I say this now and I it sounds preposterous to me. It sounds ridiculous. But in the moment, it was totally real mm-hmm. and totally, you know, I mean, it was just reasonable. And and I didn't have a plan or a mechanism for making this all happen. I just was in a deep clinical depression and I wanted to fall that, asleep and mm-hmm. fade away. And I tell this story now really openly and honestly because to your question about how to deal with this, I think the really the first step is to acknowledge what's happening because if you can't understand it and reach out to someone who will help you understand it and help you get help, then you're really stuck and the cycle, you know, sort of circling the drain continues and it can be devastating because as you say, you know, I was living the gospel and I was reading my scriptures and still couldn't feel the spirit. And that's another element of this that we can talk about later, Mm -hmm. but it's devastating. So how do I help people deal with it? I think the first step is acknowledging it. And you really can't understand the significance of the problem until you understand stigma and how embarrassing it is, potentially how shameful you feel to be living the kind of life that you wanted to you know, not be living in some sort of sin or whatever Mm -hmm. and having these feelings, it's completely overwhelming and devastating. And then feelings of guilt too, even though you're living righteously, it's like, I feel guilty because I'm having these thoughts or not being able to take care of my kids. You know, you're just having this guilt. I should just be able to kind of buck up and... Right. Because I think for so long, we've had a cultural and historical misconception about what mental illness is, and we've had a very judgmental view of it. It's been perceived for so long as some sort of character flaw, you know, just buck up. Life's tough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is something we can control or overcome if we just try harder, right? Mm -hmm. And so my message is very clear. The experience of depression and mental illness is not the result of some sort of personal inadequacy, right? Nobody thinks that battling cancer or heart disease or any other serious physical condition is a matter of pulling up your bootstraps and going at it alone. You're not going to fix this with work and discipline. You need treatment. And just like any other physical condition, clinical depression requires treatment. Thank you so much for, again, sharing your own personal experience, because I think that, like you said, sharing these stories reduces stigma and your courage gives other people courage. So thank you. You mentioned that you were doing all these things that you thought should bring you joy and peace and the spirit. 
And that is a huge thing that I think is important to talk about is that these spiritual symptoms of depression, that there is an effect and that it's hard to fill the spirit. And we've talked previously on this podcast with Sister Alberto, who uses the analogy of being in an airplane and having cloud cover covering the sun and in one moment being in the brightness of the sun and then the other having this dark, dark cloud between you and the sun and just feeling like you're in total darkness. So maybe you could describe more why it is difficult to fill the spirit when you're suffering from depression or other mental health challenges and how people can accept that, cope with that, understand it, if it's something that's happening to a loved one or a friend, we'd love to get your thoughts on that. I think it's such an important question and really something that we don't talk about enough in our church. And really in my book, it was the central theme because the two strong themes that emerged from all of the interviews that I did and the hundreds of stories that I collected over three years was number one, stigma, and number two, how depression impacts the ability to feel the spirit among people of faith, among people of our faith specifically, because those are the the people that I interviewed. So to your question, I really believe, and I have come to understand that members of our church face unique struggles when it comes to this because we're trying to fit a disease manifest through sorrow and sadness and darkness into a religion centered on a beautiful plan of happiness. And we read in the scriptures over and over, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. I mean, I remember being taught growing up that if you're doing what's right and you're following the commandments, then by extension, you are living by the Spirit and you are It happy, should be very simple, right? right? And <laughs> that's right. It's very black and white, right? And conversely then, I was taught if you're dark or sad or not social or whatever, then you've done something wrong in your life and you need to repent and it's on you, right? Mm-hmm. We take these things back on ourselves. And I have found many people who have been led to believe that if you just pray harder, depression will go away. (laughs) And so not to take away from the importance of prayer and how prayer can change your life. I mean, that's the basis of my testimony. But would you sit in a corner and pray your heart disease away? Of course you wouldn't. You would pray and you would go to the cardiologist. Right. Mm -hmm. The same principle applies to mental illness. And I am so passionate about this message because I worry so much about our adults, but especially our teenagers who have not maybe yet developed a testimony and haven't had the capacity or the ability yet to feel the spirit. And they're in a deep, dark depression and they wonder, well, what's wrong with me? I Mm -hmm. I remember one mom telling me that her daughter would come to her crying her daughter, who was in a very serious mental health crisis, and her daughter would say, you know, Mom, I've been doing extra personal progress goals, and I've been reading extra scripture, and I've been praying for God to take this away, and nothing is working, Mom. How come God isn't helping me like He's supposed to? So heartbreaking. I mean, it's just devastating. It's devastating. So I think it's so important to say that depression is a disease. It is not a spiritual disease deficit. 
And nobody is saying that prayer is not essential or that priesthood blessings don't work, but we must pull together the best of religion and the best of science, like we do with any other physical condition, Mm -hmm. to treat mental illness. Because from my experience, when I was in my darkest depression, it blocked all feelings, including feelings of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So even though I was praying and reading my scriptures and doing everything right, I could not feel God's love. So your emotional and mental health affects your spiritual health. It says in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, the body and the spirit are one, essentially, and what, what affects one impacts the other. And so that is a huge message for me that I want to get across to our saints, is that we cannot separate what happens in the physical body with what happens in the spiritual soul. And my message is, depression is a disease, not a spiritual deficit, and we have to treat it that way. Jane, you've said that sharing these stories can help overcome stigma, you know, talking about stigma and help people feel less alone because there is power in that. Like that young woman who's doing her very best, if she has other people that are saying, I'm having the same experience too, how powerful would that be to then have that resource? Because when you are feeling these feelings of overwhelming darkness and depression, it's really hard to reach out for those resources. And so being available to listen and to support, I think that's huge. If I could add to that, it's such an important point to accentuate. And I appreciate you doing that because there's so many stories that I heard. I'll never forget the woman who found out underhandedly that a young woman in her ward was suffering and had stopped going to school and would barely come out of her dark room. And the parents had tried everything and they didn't know what to do. And this woman heard that this girl was struggling and said to herself, I have to help her. And she, to that point, had never talked about her own experience as a teenager in a very similar circumstance. When she was in ninth grade, her mother coming home from work and finding her literally huddled under her bed with a plan written out to take her own life. And so what this sister did is she went over to this young woman's house and asked her mother if she could speak with this girl and shared with her her own story of struggle and her own story of healing and what she did and how her life was changed because she was able to talk about it and get treatment and talk to a doctor. and So much hope to share. Yes, it created hope in this young woman who then could see this woman that she knew in her ward who's having a wonderful life and doing exactly what she wants to be doing and came out of this. And because she was able to share that with this young girl, think of what could have happened and what did happen because she was able to have the courage to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think people are more open about this and hopefully the stigma is changing, you know, when people see these kind of success stories. I just think too, with Elder Holland's general conference talk, Like a Broken Vessel, and Sister Berto's talk, Through Cloud and Sunshine, Lord Abide With Me, and there's other resources on the church's website, and we'll link to all of these in our show notes. But I just hope that these conversations start to change and that people are more aware of the people around them or the people in their ward that they can help and support But there's also another kind of aspect to this stigma, and you explained that it's 
both externally and internally imposed. We've talked a little bit about how depression can make us feel about ourselves, that internal imposition. But there's a particular story you shared about two sisters. There was one struggling from cancer and one from depression. And we would just love for you to summarize this story for our listeners and share what you learned from comparing the two situations. So there's so many stories. This is a a particularly good one. Uh, Two sisters, both hospitalized in different cities at the same time, one with a severe stage four cancer and one with clinical depression and suicidal ideation, meaning she was having thoughts of taking her own life. And what was particularly devastating about this story was how each of these sisters, how differently they were treated by family and friends. For the sister with cancer, it was an outpouring of love and support and meals and phone calls and visits and a GoFundMe site. And understanding, right? And understanding. And she so richly deserved it. It was a terrible situation. But for the sister with depression and mental illness and suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, nothing even close to that. No cards, no calls, just a lot of judgment, even from people who knew her, even from her own family. Like, oh, there she goes again, back in the hospital. (laughs) What's her problem? Can't she just figure this out? And so I think the truth of the matter is both of these women was quite literally fighting for her life. And so to understand the significance of, again, a physical condition and a mental condition, they are the same. And that's what I keep coming back to over and over again. And once we understand that, once we wrap our minds around that, and once we change our paradigm related to that, I think a lot can shift. Mm -hmm. And I think about the people in my life who have been suffering from cancer or other physical disease, and it's just very evident in their physical appearance, it's evident that they're suffering. And so I think it's more difficult sometimes to identify when people are suffering with their mental health and have these challenges. Yes. And so I think it's important that when people do open up, because that's very difficult, but when we are aware of what they're going through, then I think it's our responsibility to believe them and then to act. Yeah. Yeah. I think about when you just said that, I think about a woman named Jolene Meredith. She wrote the music for the beloved LDS hymn, Where Can I Turn for Peace? Emily Thane wrote the lyrics and Jolene Meredith wrote the music. And I interviewed Jolene because I knew that she had suffered with mental health challenges. And I talk about this in my book and how she had been essentially holed up in her house for months. She couldn't leave. She had a very serious clinical depression. And she said to me, you know, I wish I could wear a cast on my head (laughs) because something is broken in there. Just like we have Mm -hmm. a cast on an arm that we break or a leg. I wish I could wear a cast on my head because something is broken in there, but that's really hard for people to understand. And so again, when you can't see it, it's hard to react. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about it, to your point, when we open up, those of us who hear and who see and who understand need to reach out and then mourn with those that mourn and understand and have empathy and sympathy for the struggle. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot about this responsibility that we have as 
we have made covenants as Latter-day Saints to mourn with those that mourn and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And you say, we are very good at taking care of temporal needs, and sometimes it's hard for us to recognize those emotional needs and take care of those emotional needs. And I think you also share that we have a responsibility then to learn to better recognize these challenges. I think oftentimes we can sense when something is a little off. And maybe we just have an idea like, it seems like maybe she's not the same as she normally is, or it seems like maybe something's a little bit wrong. And in those situations, maybe taking the opportunity to learn how to best approach and ask how we can help. So maybe if you have anything that you'd want to share as far as things that especially women can do for each other in our responsibility to Mm -hmm. care for each other or to recognize difficulties that others around us are having with mental illness. I think it's a really good point, and I talk about this a lot in my book, and we have made covenants to mourn with those that mourn and to help and heal, and I think we're so good at meeting the physical needs of each other and serving each other in a physical way, meals and helping with Babysitting, and yes. Babysitting, yeah. I mean, all of it, we're so good, and our saints are so wonderful. And so willing. I think people really are willing. Mm-hmm. And we need to extend those same reflexes to mental health challenges because the truth is that now I can spot someone a mile away, having been through it. I mean, I can see it. You know, I can see it in someone's eyes. I can see it in the body language. I can feel it in the communications. And I think so many of us can because we've been through it. Mm-hmm. And so it is an obligation that we have then yeah. to use our experience to help others who are suffering. And again, mourning with those that mourn. I have to say to you, and I say this often now, that I never thought that I would be grateful for the experience of depression and my journey through this. But I have understood now in a more profound way than I ever could have before what it means to mourn with those that mourn and what a Christ-like act that is and how profoundly grateful I am for the opportunity I've had to do that. And so to your question, what can we do? We can listen. Sometimes we don't know what to say. And I think a lot of people say, well, I don't really know. What do I do? Well, you can always sit with someone. You can always hold someone's hand. You can always take a phone call. You can always reach out and just listen. You can help find resources. Yeah, I was going to say sharing resources is a huge yes. thing. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that we can do and we must do in order to help each other along this journey. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that the sharing of stories is powerful medicine and that when we do yes. open up, yes. and I've maybe shared this before on this podcast, but I remember a time I was struggling with anxiety and I opened up and shared with another young mom friend of mine that I was seeing a therapist, and she said, me too. And it was like, really? I suddenly didn't feel so alone, didn't feel so weak and inadequate. It was like, oh. And then we could talk about it and share our experience, and it was just very powerful. And I felt 
Yes. Stories are healing and storytelling is therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And so when we open up, when we share our experiences, it helps others. It gives others the permission to do Mm -hmm. the same. I did a Zoom fireside in California on Sunday night for a stake young men, young women's event. And afterwards, the stake young women's president said, because in my fireside, I talk a lot about these stories and especially for a young audience, what it means to open up, what it means to have these feelings and start talking about them with a parent or a young women's leader or young men's leader or your bishop or whatever. And she reached out to me afterwards and she said, the stories have started. And we have several young men who we had no idea were feeling these things. And now because they felt permission that they weren't alone. And I think that's really the key. When you have an understanding that you're not alone, when other people you can see or hear have been through it, somehow that takes a load mm-hmm. off. Somehow that helps you move forward mm-hmm. in your healing. And this relates so perfectly. I think probably one of my favorite stories that you shared, just because I can so relate to it at this time in my life. I know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> is a story about a young mom named Emily who was suffering from postpartum depression and just feeling like a failure. And her Relief Society president came over to visit her And she knocked on the door, and this young mom says, my house, of course, was a disaster because homes with young children are always a disaster. Correct. And Emily said, oh, don't come in. It's a mess in here. And the Relief Society president really firmly said, no, you need to let people in. Letting people into your house when it looks its worst is the best gift you can give. It lets them know they're normal, too. And that gives me the chills because I do think we want to, like, rush around and put our makeup on and do our hair and get dressed and get the house clean so that it looks like we have everything together. But the reality is is that life is messy. And when we give others permission to live their messy lives and for us to live our messy lives, I just think that relieves a lot of suffering. And I'd love for you, if you have more to share on that, how we can give ourselves and others permission to live messy lives. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you brought this point up because I think a lot of women, especially in our culture, struggle with this. I relate to Emily's story because there was a time in my own life when I was very careful not to let anyone into my house unless it was perfectly clean. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I had two little kids. I had three older stepkids. My husband joined the church later in life before I met him. And I had a big house full of lots of things, but I had convinced myself that somehow my mothering skills or my homemaking skills or my time management skills were on display if somehow, you know, everything wasn't perfect and in its place. So it was not a surprise, to be frank, that many people I interviewed, especially women, talked about the appearance of their homes or their children or how they looked or Mm -hmm. what others thought of them. Mm -hmm. And so I talk in my book about this facade of perfection, you know, perfectionism, toxic perfectionism as a contributor to depression. It's a huge problem. And I think there are many studies that link depression and toxic perfectionism to even suicidal thoughts and tendencies. Mm -hmm. So I think the understanding that we are not perfect and my social media feed is not pristine or shouldn't be, Mm -hmm. you know, um, everything is in its place. Every child is perfectly dressed. (laughs) We've got to get over this narrative that somehow... If we let a crack in the facade show that somehow we're not enough, and my message is you are enough, you are enough, 
and be kinder to yourself, take care of yourself, love yourself, and let others know that you do that. Because when you do, and you're not perfect, again, it gives permission for others. Yes, I love that idea. Because it's so true. I just think of friendships that I have that for a time you keep up these perfect, you know, I don't Marco Polo you unless I have makeup on. I remember with different friendships when that kind of barrier broke and it was like, no, I'm messaging you in the depths of my messiness. And then they can do the same back. And that's just reality, you know. So I interviewed a professor um, from UVU. Her name is Chris Dota Yells. And she told me a fascinating story about toxic perfectionism, where she studied this and documented a pattern of increased visits by women to the emergency room on Sunday afternoons. She said that they would hear a talk or a lesson in church that somehow instilled some sort of guilt or shame in them, or they'd misunderstood some principle or something, and they felt inadequate or felt guilty about their inability to measure up. And I actually saw the story that was written about Professor Yell's research in the Daily Universe at BYU, and I called her and I asked her more about her research. And what she found was fascinating because she set out to study and understand what makes perfectionism such a recurring theme in cases of depression and anxiety. And what she told me essentially was that women especially are trying to put on their best image, their best face, their best appearance, which is a good thing, right? We always want to put our best foot forward. But I think we forget that in reality, we all struggle and we're all imperfect and it's okay to reveal that too. And I think what I learned from her and from the many people that I interviewed is that we put this scripture, be therefore perfect, we put that scripture on steroids. (laughs) Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Well, the translation means essentially to be complete or whole. It's not without flaw. And I learned a really important lesson about a comparative study of the New Testament on this point from Michael Wilcox, who showed me that Luke's version of that scripture reads, not be ye therefore perfect, but rather it reads, be ye therefore merciful. Wow. Be ye therefore merciful to others and to yourself. So I talk all the time about this because I think women especially need to understand They need to rip off the I'm fine, happy, smiley face (laughs) and and let's be a little bit more real with each other. And I'm not suggesting that we wear a sign on our sleeve publicizing our pain, but I do think that there is value and growth in sharing our struggles and being a little bit more honest Mm -hmm. about who we are and what we're going through. Well, and certainly I, I love the story about the messy house because it's like, yeah, when people see our messy house, they're like, okay, I'm normal too. But then seeing like, our messy lives, when things aren't going well, that's not reflected in how we keep our house. It's like my life just sometimes you go through these times that they're so difficult. And so to open up and people think, you know, okay, great. I'm normal too. Like her life Mm -hmm. is messy. My life is messy. We can connect. And I mean, there there is some level though of we can't just let everything go. We do need to take care of ourselves. And I think that for those of us who have children, it's very easy to put the needs of our children ahead of our own needs. And we are just wondering, from your perspective, what does this healthy self-care look like? Not putting on the facade of like having everything together, but taking care of ourselves in a healthy, balanced way. So what I have learned about this is that 
giving yourself permission to take care of yourself is really the first step mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think sometimes we feel guilty that if I'm not doing everything for everybody else, then somehow I'm not a good mom or I'm not a good wife or I'm not a, you know, whatever. I think to love your neighbor as yourself, to find time even, and I get it, I'm in a different stage now because my youngest kids are teenagers, Mm -hmm. but I remember how hard it was having little kids at your feet all day long. But if there's some way just to find a few minutes for yourself to trade babysitting, Mm -hmm. you know, with a neighbor or a sister or a friend. And go for a walk or get in the bathtub and just sit and meditate and listen to music and pray and do things that bring you happiness and joy. And don't be afraid to find your own joy, your own little something that only you feel good Mm -hmm. when you're doing Mm -hmm. it, right? I think that's so important for women to give themselves permission to do that because I think we're so outward focused, which is a good thing. And especially in the church, we're we're taught to serve and and we should serve. You know, we're doers. And we want to. Yeah, we want to serve. And we do want to. And we can still want to, but we also have to want to take care of ourselves Mm -hmm. too. Because if we're not healthy, then the house of cards starts to fall. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I interviewed a guy at CBS. I remember the title of his book was, When Mama Isn't Happy, Ain't Nobody Happy. (laughs) (laughs) So these are important lessons that I think young moms Mm -hmm. especially struggle with and that I hope they hear the message of that today. And I think, too, you mentioned throughout these stories that you share that some of this care does include living the gospel, that scripture study and prayer and service can all bring us great joy and happiness and peace. But we have to care for ourselves and our health. And if our mental health needs are not met, if we need therapy, if we need medication, then living the gospel isn't going to heal those things that are broken. Exactly. I remember interviewing a young mom who said something that I'll never forget. Her name was Jackie, and she had three little girls, and her husband was in the military, so he was frequently deployed. And quite often, she would find herself alone, full of anxiety and some depression because she was trying to put up that facade of perfection, right? Everything's good. I'm fine. I don't need help. I'm, we're good here. you know. And as you can imagine, that didn't work out so well. And so Jackie developed a mantra, four little words that she told herself over and over again. And I love it. I love what she said. She said, I give myself his grace. And I think about that in the context of what Moroni taught, by the grace of God, ye are perfect in Christ. That's the power of Christ in our lives. He's given us his atonement so we can accept his grace every single day. And that includes being kinder to yourself, taking care of yourself, accepting your limitations, love yourself like Heavenly Father loves you. So less doing, more being, more grace. That was what I took away from her story, which I just love. That is really beautiful. In thinking about how the gospel can support us, especially when we're having these challenges and taking care of our spiritual health, up until my mission, I just thought of the atonement as using it for repentance. And then when it clicked that it's like, oh, Jesus Christ knows how we feel when we're hurt or when we're sick, things like that. That was another part that kind of clicked into place. But it wasn't until I was having a really difficult time on my mission with struggling with some anxiety. And I may have shared this on the podcast before, but the moment that it came together for me that Jesus Christ had experienced that feeling of anxiety and knew how that felt 
that just completely changed my perspective on the atonement and the support that Jesus Christ can give us. And so thinking how important Mm. it is when people know how we feel and when we can make that connection with others, that's a very easy connection we can make to Jesus Christ. He knows how we feel. That is beautiful. And I so appreciate you sharing that. I interviewed a professor at BYU, Dan Judd, who surveyed about 600 BYU students And he asked them about grace in the conjunction with mental health. And what he found is that the more the respondents believed that their salvation was primarily a result of their own good works, their own doing, the higher their scores were on measures of shame and depression and anxiety. But when they truly understood the influence of grace on their mental health and on their lives, they had dramatically lower scores on those same measures. So to your point, when you understand the Savior, His atonement and His grace, His beautiful grace for you in your life, you know, that can shift things. And I will say that is true. Everything I just said is true. But there are some who can't feel the Spirit when they're depressed, and they can't understand that. I think we need to acknowledge them, too, because there are many return missionaries, one particular sister who came home from her mission early because of depression and anxiety, and she couldn't understand why she couldn't feel the Spirit, why she couldn't understand the Savior's love for her. She thought she wasn't being obedient enough or she wasn't working hard enough, and she felt abandoned by God. She couldn't understand the things that we were just talking about because she was in a clinical depression. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So sometimes these understandings and the feelings of the Spirit are blocked for us, and so we need to get treatment before we can sort of open up those channels again to understand and feel God's love and grace. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Well, Jane, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think what I have come to understand over these last few years, my own experience with depression and interviewing and speaking with and understanding the journey of so many of our saints across the country, is that God will always love you. God is always there. And even though we can't feel him sometimes in the darkest moments of mental health crises, he's always there. And he will always be by our side, uplifting us and helping us. And I think we can't forget that. And we can't forget how his influence can shift things. There was a quote that I heard the other day. I put it up on my refrigerator. I just love it. It says, rely on the Lord, for only he can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, and a trial into a triumph, and what's broken into something beautiful. So mental health crises are some of the most devastating and debilitating events that can happen in our lives. And what I have come to understand is that there is hope, there is healing, there is treatment, and there is a future. I think a lot of people feel helpless and hopeless, and I'm here to say that there are others who've been through this who can help you and can extend a hand to lift you up as the Savior would lift you up in these darkest and most trying of moments. I quoted in my book a quote that's been widely used. and In fact, I think Sister Alberto used it in her talk about mental illness. She quoted from my book when she said, depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. And I think that's a really important quote to remember. Depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. 
And the more we can have empathy and learn to mourn with those that mourn, the greater our ability to bust the stigma and help educate ourselves into the crisis that is mental health and draw closer to the Lord in the midst of it all. Jane, thank you so much for sharing these powerful stories and for reminding us that God's love is powerful and it is always there. It's been really great to have you and to talk with you on such an important topic. Well, thank you both, Shaylin and Carly. I'm so grateful for your willingness to talk about this and for inviting me on today. You're wonderful. And thank you for the work you do on this podcast. I'm really grateful. Thank you. We really appreciate you joining us today. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Latter-day Saint Women podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Jane Clayson Johnson and that you've been enjoying other episodes of the podcast as well. If you'd like to hear more about the topic of mental health, you can check out one of our previous episodes with Sister Raina Alberto and her daughter Elena as they discuss depression and anxiety and how to give and, and find support. Mm-hmm. We also want to thank our wonderful editor, Kurt Dahl, and our producer, Matthew Mangum, and others who support this podcast, especially during this time of social distancing and virtual interviews. We're glad to have this opportunity to continue safely visiting with our guests. And also want to add that for those listening who may be struggling or know someone who is struggling, we'll link resources to church resources on mental illness, on suicide, on the episode that Shaylin mentioned with Sister Alberto. There's a lot available there to help and support. And again, just want to encourage, we love hearing from our listeners and invite you to leave a rating or a view wherever you listen to the podcast or to feel free to contact us at podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org with any suggestions for topics or guests that you'd like to hear from. And until next week, I'm Carly Guyman. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for listening. Thank you.